You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Rupa Sangani, a cardiologist in the Rush University System for Health, to the show today. Dr. Sangani is the director of the Rush University Medical Center's Nuclear Cardiology and Stress Laboratory and the associate director for the Rush Heart Center for Women. Her clinical expertise is in cardiac imaging, cardiovascular risk assessment and counseling, coronary artery disease, and with women who either have heart disease or are at risk for it. She also leads the Cardiac Positron Emission Tomography, or PET, perfusion program at Rush, which is the focus of our interview today. Cardiac PET perfusion with flow quantification is the latest advancement in nuclear stress testing and is used to examine how well blood flows to the heart muscle. Rush is the first and only hospital in Illinois to offer this technology. Welcome, Dr. Sangani. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's dive in and talk about cardiac PET perfusion. What is it and when is it utilized? Cardiac PET is a type of nuclear stress test. So we can do stress tests these days in many different ways. One of the most common is nuclear stress testing, and our traditional technology is called a SPECT camera. PET is the other type of camera. Now, many people know nuclear stress testing as thallium or technetium, which are the tracers we use, but the camera technology is really the differentiation. So PET is the newest way to do a nuclear stress test. It is only unfortunately indicated for pharmacologic stress tests for now. So we can either exercise a patient, and that's how we put their heart under, quote, stress. And patients who can't exercise, we will do a chemical vasodilator to mimic, essentially, that increased blood flow and exercise. And then we image the heart with either the SPECT or the PET camera. The test is very similar in its initial part, um, but there's significant advantages to cardiac PET. First, for the patients, is that it's much easier. It's about a 35-minute scan compared to a two-and-a-half to three-hour process. It is less radiation for our patients, and patients are becoming more cognizant of that. The scan, the amount of time under the camera in total is less, so it's more comfortable. And then from an imaging standpoint, it is a higher emitting isotope, which means that the pictures that we get are much clearer. So we have a lot less what we call equivocal studies. It is either absolutely definitely normal or definitively abnormal. And there's a few other features on the test that are are really helpful. We can check what's called a, a stress ejection fraction, which means we can see how the heart responds when we do the stress test. In a normal heart, when we put it under stress, we should see the heart increase its function. When we don't, that's potentially a high-risk marker. And then the last big feature is that we can actually measure the blood flow in the heart on this study versus just doing what we call relative perfusion. And measuring the flow is is a really big feature to PET. I'm curious about how long this technology has been on the market, uh, along with how Rush came to adopt it into its cardiac care. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. 
Now, PET scanners have been around for a long time, and they're used primarily in most places for oncology purposes, for tumor and whole body staging. It's essentially the same camera, but there's added technology to allow for the gating of the heart, meaning that because the heart is a moving structure, we are actually timing it to the cardiac cycle to get better pictures. So PET has probably been around for 20, 30 years. Cardiac PET has probably been around for five to 10 years, but it's really just taking off in the last few years. Rush was very lucky. We did a complete upgrade of all of our cameras and, and nuclear cardiology systems about two years ago. And when we were in the planning process, so that was probably four years ago, and looking at the new technology, had the foresight to say, you know, PET is really the way the nuclear community is going. It's a very expensive piece of equipment, and that's why most places don't have it. But Rush made the investment and said, you know, this is worth it for our patients to really invest in the best technology. And so when we revamped the program two years ago, we were able to acquire a PET camera that is dedicated for cardiac imaging. So I want to ask about how cardiac PET perfusion fits in with the overall comprehensive cardiac diagnostics offered at Rush. So we offer really the full spectrum of diagnostic imaging for cardiac disease at Rush. So we can look at the heart in multiple different ways. We can do just a plain EKG. For imaging, we can do an ultrasound or an echocardiogram of the heart, nuclear stress testing, coronary CT or CT angiography to look at both the heart arteries or just the structure of the heart, and a cardiac MRI. And we offer all of those. Obviously, I'm a nuclear cardiologist, so I'm always going to be a little bit more excited about that. But I think each imaging modality has its advantages and disadvantages. And they all can be used on a certain patient. It depends on what your question is at the time. So I pick what test I'm going to use for imaging depending on what's my question for that patient at that moment in time. What's the history of the patient? What am I looking for? What information do I want to get? In terms of stress testing, which is really what our test is mostly used for, we can do a stress ultrasound we can do a stress nuclear, or we can do a CAT scan, which is looking more at the anatomy of heart disease. Our tests are assessing more for what we call functional testing. We look at, at the tissue level. Is the heart getting enough blood flow? Is it having what we call ischemia? And that's really what we look at. But we offer the full spectrum of imaging services. I think that the PET program adds some novel imaging parameters that we didn't have before. The other thing that I can do with the PET camera is to look for something called viability testing. And that's patients who've maybe had a heart attack and on initial imaging looks like that tissue is dead. We will do viability assessment to say, well, is that tissue just sluggish, but still alive? And if it's alive, then doing a procedure like an angiogram or a stent might actually improve the heart function if that tissue is still alive. And we can also use the PET scanner for something called sarcoid imaging. Now, sarcoid is another disease process that is um, still kind of early in our diagnostic capabilities, but we have treatments for it now. And being able to see and appreciate that there's involvement in active inflammation of sarcoid in the heart can and change a patient's management as well. 
One specific aspect of your cardiac diagnostic capabilities that I wanted to ask about was quantitating myocardial blood flow. How do you use that clinically uh, at Rush? Yeah. So flow and flow reserve is probably what people are most excited about with PET. When we look at a nuclear stress test in general, we are looking at what we call relative perfusion. So we're looking at relative differences in blood flow. And one of the problems with a traditional nuclear stress test is if all three arteries of the heart are affected, we can miss what we call balanced ischemia. It's the Achilles heel of nuclear cardiology. And I'm always looking at every study for for high-risk features or any small bits that might mean that we're missing that all three heart arteries are affected. No test is 100% perfect. The advantage to PET is not just am I looking at relative perfusion, but I can actually quantitate that flow. So I can measure it in actual number terms. So we know that at rest, normal flow to the heart is about one mLs per gram per minute. There's a range, but we'll just say for purposes of today, it's about one. When you exercise, your heart arteries should dilate to increase blood flow to the heart to meet that demand of exercise. And when you exercise, your heart vessels dilate such that your flow should go up to two to four mLs per gram per minute. When we do our pharmacologic stress test, we're mimicking that. We're giving a vasodilator to open up those arteries. In a normal study, not just will I see that the relative perfusion looks normal, but I'll actually see that the flow goes from one up to two, three, and four in every segment. And I can say that the flow reserve, which is the stress flow divided by the rest flow, should be above two. When I see that the flow and flow reserve is above two, I feel very comfortable saying that at the tissue level, the heart is getting plenty of blood flow. There's no disease in what we call the macrovascular or the three big arteries that sit on top of the heart, but there's also no disease in the small blood vessels that actually dive down into the heart tissue. When it's normal and flow and flow reserve is normal, there's great data now supporting that the likelihood of significant heart disease at any level, the big vessels or the small blood vessels, is very, very low. And that that patient's risk of having an event like a heart attack or death is very low. When we see that the flow reserve is low, it's diminished, we can see different patterns. So I could see that one area, one part of the heart is affected. That usually means that there's single vessel disease or a blockage in that heart arteries. But sometimes we can see that it's diffusely decreased, and that could either be multi-vessel disease or that Achilles heel of nuclear where I'm worried about balanced ischemia. It can also help us diagnose something newer, though, that we're calling CMD, or coronary microvascular disease. So we know that coronary circulation, about two-thirds of coronary circulation, is actually supplied by the small blood vessels, the microvascular. And when we look at a heart angiogram, when we focus on the epicardial or the big arteries, we're focusing really just on the three arteries that we can see on an angiogram, which are the big arteries. We miss everything under the surface. There are patients we see who come in with chest pain, and a good story for angina, their relative perfusion shows ischemia. It shows that at the tissue level, there's less blood flow. And yet when we send them for an angiogram, the heart arteries are normal. 
the three big arteries. And these patients are unfortunately told, oh, the stress test was wrong. You don't have heart disease. Well, you don't have epicardial disease in those big arteries, but we're missing what's below the surface. And so the flow and flow reserve can be really used to sell if there's microvascular disease. And then it helps again as an adjunct to the whole picture. And looking at the relative perfusion, how the heart responds to stress in terms of does it augment its function, the flows. And then lastly, we, we do add coronary calcium under our studies. Integrating all four of those markers gives us a very robust assessment of what's going on with the heart and the heart arteries. I want to go back to something you had talked about, and you had mentioned that there are pluses and uh, different diagnostic tools that we have at Rush. Specifically, I'm curious about the difference in the initial outcomes in diagnosing microvascular or diffuse coronary artery disease and, and balanced ischemia high-risk disease between cardiac pet perfusion and nuclear stress testing. Is one way more effective than another? Yeah. PET has um, a much higher prognostic ability. So again, we have seen patients who unfortunately have a traditional nuclear stress test and are told, oh, it's very mildly abnormal. And then those end up being balanced ischemia. Now, we, again, we can look for those high-risk features, but we can miss that. With PET being able to measure the flow and getting a true stress ejection fraction, it's rare that we would miss balanced ischemia. We do know that there's, first of all, prognostic data about flow. Anyone with a flow above two, again, I feel very comfortable saying that there's nothing high-grade or obstructive. Anyone less than two is prognostically higher risk, meaning that patient is at higher risk for events. The most recent data that's come out just in the last six months says anyone less than 1.8 is now the cutoff. It used to be two, and now we're looking at above 1.8 and below 1.8. And we know that patients at less than 1.5 are definitely at the highest risk. Now, a low flow reserve doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to find, again, severe blockages in the three arteries that we can see in the angiogram. It could be microvascular disease. But it definitely tells me that at the tissue level, what the heart is seeing at the tissue level is low blood flow, which whether it's microvascular or macrovascular disease, prognostically definitely helps. You know, this would be the patient that I would say, okay, we really need to be aggressive with all your risk factors. We need to get your cholesterol and your blood pressure super well controlled. You need to do your part to not be smoking, to lose that weight, so that we can really reduce your risk in the future. Are there any long-term quality of life or survival outcomes that you measure in using pet perfusion versus nuclear stress testing? And if so, what is the specific data? There is, again, long-term data on a negative pet. So again, if you have a normal PET scan with normal flow, normal reserve, very little calcium in the heart, no calcium in the heart arteries, then yes, there is a wealth of data that at two to three years, the event rate, meaning the chances of you having a heart attack or death, is extremely low. It's less than 1%. We have similar data in the traditional SPECT technology data, but it's even more robust in PET because, again, the, the probability that there is anything there when you have normal numbers is, is very, very low. 
I don't think we have quality of life data, but survival outcomes again. So we know that the flow reserve less than 1.8, and that's what I mean by prognostic data. We know that anyone less than 1.8, and in particular less than 1.5 for flow reserve, has a much higher risk of adverse cardiac events over time. The other thing I was curious about is if you perform a coronary artery calcium scan with your PET CT scans. And if you do, how is that used? That's a great question. So we use CT with both our SPECT and our PET cameras now for what we call attenuation correction. So these radioactive tracers, when they come out of the heart, sometimes if you have a large body habitus, a lot of soft tissue with either large breasts or if you're overweight, it can block some of that tracer coming out. Sometimes when we see diminished counts or pictures, we're not sure is it just because of the body habitus or because there's actually a defect there. Adding a CT component and calcium component really helps with the image quality. In our lab, we do do calcium scores with the imaging in someone who does not have a known history of heart disease. So calcium is part of the atherosclerotic process. If I see calcium in the heart arteries, I will tell patients that you have heart disease, for sure. Whether we see ischemia or low blood flow or not, there's still vascular heart disease that should be treated with blood pressure and cholesterol and all that good stuff. So when someone who we already know has heart disease, doing a calcium score does not help that patient. It doesn't change what we do. But if they don't have known heart disease, then adding a calcium score on can really help. And so our protocol is to add it on to anyone who doesn't have known heart disease. Now, the calcium score is an additional scan. It's different than the attenuation correction scan, but it literally takes about 20 seconds. And it is a minimal amount of radiation. It's about two to three chest x-rays worth of radiation. So as long as the patient is okay with that and the ordering physician is okay, that is our protocol. And it really gives information. There's many scans where we read it as essentially normal, except for that we found some calcium. And so in my final conclusion, I will tell patients, you know, Patients are referred for stress tests because usually because they're having symptoms. That's the number one indication for a stress test is for the symptomatic intermediate risk patient. So what I can tell that referring physician is this is a low-risk scan for ischemia, meaning they're having symptoms, but the symptoms are not due to heart disease because there's no ischemia there. But do they have coronary disease? Do they have some vessel atherosclerosis? They do. And that's a new diagnosis. So you should take a look at, again, do you need to be more aggressive with their blood pressure and their cholesterol to reduce their risk going forward? But again, no ischemia, meaning I don't think their symptoms are due to blockages in the heart arteries. So for cardiologists who perform their own stress testing, when should they recommend a cardiac PET or imaging study at Rush? That's a great question as well. You know, most cardiologists have their own nuclear cameras, many in their office in a spec technology, and, and that's great. We have the newest cameras. We're happy to take any and all referrals, but I get that people obviously and patients want to do the test where their doctor is. Where I would recommend another referring cardiologist send to us is if you have a patient who has an equivocal nuclear stress test at your institution, so you can't tell 
maybe the very large or obese patient where the imaging is really hard to tell because of that body habitus being in the way. So I would say obese patients or body habitus, anyone with an equivocal spect, you can't tell. You're getting maybe discrepant results between different parts of the test and you're not sure. The patient where the stakes are high, patient who has kidney insufficiency and you're worried about something, but you don't want to do a diagnostic angiogram because you're worried about their kidney function, getting a PET can be very helpful because it's much less equivocal. Again, the diagnostic certainty here is much better. I'd say younger patients with known heart disease, a PET is a great choice because those are patients that are going to be getting a lot of testing over their lifetime. And so because the PET is less radiation, it's going to give you much higher diagnostic certainty for a lot less radiation. And those are the patients I would recommend. And then finally, in a patient where you specifically want that flow and flow reserve, maybe you have already done the angiogram and you have an equivocal lesion. You're not sure if this needs to be stented or not. It's right on the cusp. Doing a PET to see if there's functional ischemia in that area can be helpful. Or again, if you're worried about coronary microvascular disease, which really this is the, probably the best test for microvascular dysfunction, that's when I would refer for a PET scan to rush. We have tried to make this very easy for our referring physicians. So if anyone is interested, we really have a very simple one-page clinical intake form and a one-page billing form that need to be completed. You would fax that back with the clinic notes and the prior imaging because we do need that for insurance approval. But we will take care of all of the insurance approval, get it approved, get the patient scheduled. And in general, we do try and call our referring physician. You would usually get a phone call that day with the results. Dr. Sangani, thank you for an informative interview today. Thank you very much for having me. Having the first cardiac PET program in the area has been very exciting. We did a lot of due diligence in the lab to look at our cats and to make sure that the the numbers we were putting out correlate properly with what we're actually seeing on the angiograms. All of our studies, just so everyone knows, are all read by cardiologists. And we really try to provide kind of a comprehensive risk assessment for that referring physician. And I think it's a huge boon for our patients in giving them great quality information in an easier test and with less radiation. Thank you so much.